we do our newsletter every week, and then last week I made a little slip when I was doing, I talked about a, a big women's conference, <laughs> some of you will remember that, and it got me thinking about uh, some church notices that hey, I've come across that could cause some confusion. Here's some of them. Bertha Belch, a missionary from Africa, will be speaking at Calvary Methodist Church. Come and hear Bertha Belch all the way from Africa. <laughs> the sermon this morning, Jesus Walks on Water. The sermon tonight, Looking for Jesus. Um, <clears throat> ladies, don't forget the jumble sale. It's a chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping around the house. Don't forget your husband's. On Sunday past, Miss Charlene Mason sang, I will not pass this way again, giving obvious pl- pleasure to the congregation. Um, yeah. Barbara Smith remains in hospital and thanks everyone for their visits. She's also having trouble sleeping and requests tapes of Pastor Craig's sermons. <laughs> She's never getting better. Um, at the evening service tonight, the topic will be what is hell. Come early and listen to our choir practice. Um, <clears throat> low self-esteem group will meet Thursday at 7pm. Please use the back door. <laughs> this is a bit like my last week. Weight watchers will meet at 7pm at the First Presbyterian Church. Please use the large double door at the side entrance. <laughs> yep. An announcement about a church week of prayer and fasting. The cost for attending the conference during the prayer and fasting week includes meals. Um, so today we are beginning our annual week of prayer and fasting. And I'm very aware that for many of us, and I've done this for a number of years, this is probably my 8th January that I've done this. And I'm aware that for myself, often the biggest struggle isn't giving up food. I mean, that's tough, particularly days doing three. I tend to just have liquids and have soup in the evenings. That's how I do it. The food is a tough bit. For me, the hardest bit is actually seeking God. It's finding time to pray. It's setting aside a time just to really reset my focus, re- recalibrate my heart, and, 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 and fix it on him. Just going without food and not praying is a diet. That's not fasting. Fasting is going without something for a spiritual purpose. And that's one of the things I, I have come to realize is that, that the food bit, that's important. But without prayer, it's like, it's like lacking something in, in, in the power. And prayer is one of those things that we all want to do. We all know we should do. We all feel guilty that we don't do enough of or that we don't pray as we should. I, I, for some reason, I was thinking this week about a, a date I went on um, a long time ago. Long, long time ago. Um, probably 20 years ago on Valentine's night. And I'd been dating this girl for a while and it wasn't going great, but I was too big a chicken to have the conversation. And, and so it's really awkward when Valentine rolls around because you have to try and act romantic even if you don't particularly feel it. And so I did what all dutiful boyfriends do. I booked a Chinese restaurant on the Dublin Road in Belfast and, uh, and we went out for dinner. And I remember so clearly that night watching all these couples around us who were so in love, who were so passionate, who, who were having no trouble expressing their emotions. And I was trying to force passion. I was trying to force affection. I was trying to force some expression of devotion. And it was really hard work. And it felt fake. It felt false. 
And I think actually within a day or so, we, we broke up. But it got me thinking that prayer is a bit like that, that we want to be passionate about praying. We want to spend more time with God. But it's just when we try to do it, it's exhausting. It feels like hard work. It feels unnatural. And soon we give up. And I think that I have discovered, as I studied the passage we're looking at in 1 Samuel 1 this morning, I have discovered why we don't pray as much as we should or as passionately as we should. And it is this. It's quite simply because we don't care enough about the things we're praying about. We don't care enough about the things we are praying about. We pray about things that we are told that we ought to be interested in or we should be passionate about. But we don't pray about the things that stir our souls, that keep us awake at night, that burden us, the issues, the peoples, the situations that we have to see change. There has to be movement. There has to be breakthrough. That if God doesn't move, we have no hope. That he is our only hope left and everything depends on him. That's why we don't pray enough, because we're not passionate enough. And we're not passionate enough because we don't care enough. It's Jim Cimbala, who's one of my favorite writers and preachers from the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York, puts it like this. Prayer cannot truly be taught by principles or seminars or symposiums. It has to be born out of a whole environment of felt need. If I say I ought to pray, I will soon run out of motivation and quit. The flesh is too strong. I have to be driven to pray and we're going to look at one woman called Hannah and how she was driven to pray through a desperate need in her own life we're going to look at first Samuel let's start at verse one there was a man a certain man from Matthiam a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Alkanah the son of Jeroboam the son of Elihu the son of Tohu the son of Zuth an Ephraimite if that verse alone hasn't blessed you I don't know whatever will He had two wives, red flag. One was called Hannah and the other one was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. So we have this guy called Elkanah. He married Hannah first because that's the one he really wanted. But because she wasn't able to have children, he ended up marrying Penina. And she was really there just to give him kids. And as we start to look at this passage, I, I want to say a few things. The first thing is this, that when it comes to... Um, children and the whole area of conception, we need to be sensitive. I know you know this, but I just want to remind you of this. I'm very sensitive of the, conscious of the sensitivities around conception and the struggle that some people have to have children. I just met a girl a few weeks ago who I'd went to school with and uh, I hadn't seen her in 20-something years and I, I said to her, so what about you, any wee ones? And she just with tears in her eyes said no it hasn't worked out for us and it just reminded me once again that we need to be careful we don't tread in eggshells I understand that but we just need to have sensitivities around that whole area because for some people it is a real struggle in this culture 3,000 years ago and by the way can I just say just because we have one child that is not our problem okay um that's choice I have the Chinese one child policy okay he was born when I was 37 I'm tired um end off okay so don't ever feel like you need to be sensitive around us around that um people are like you're not gonna have another wee one no um 
In this culture, 3,000 years ago, having children was more important even than it was is today, and especially a male child, because the family name and the family line was carried through males. You needed a son, otherwise your inheritance was lost. And so there was a whole pressure on women to provide sons for their husbands. And if you didn't do that, you were seen as a failure, you were seen as a disappointment, and you were seen possibly even as being cursed by God. And that's where Hannah is right now. Hannah's unable to have children, and she's not in a good place emotionally. Second thing I want to say is this. When the Bible talks about somebody having two wives, it's not telling you that that's a good idea, okay? We need to understand that there's passages in the Bible that are descriptive and prescriptive. Descriptive just tells you something happened. Prescriptive is saying, go and do this. Okay, this is a descriptive passage. It's not condoning it. It's not condoning bigamy or polygamy. It's not saying it's okay. It's simply reporting the facts of what happened in the lives of certain people in a certain culture at a certain time. So before you men run out and grab yourselves another wife, God would say, one's more than enough. And as we will soon see, any time you have one man in a relationship with two women, nothing good ever comes of it. Plus you get extra mothers-in-law. Um, I better watch myself here this morning. I'm going off script. Look at verses 3 to 5 with me. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all his, her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. You know, in many ways, Hannah had a good life. She had a husband who clearly loved her very, very much. She was from a wealthy family. In those days, only wealthy people could afford to have more than one wife. And she had a godly family. They were a family of believers. They went up to worship together regularly. At this stage, the temple in Jerusalem hadn't been built. So they had this thing called the tabernacle, which was a tent where they went to worship and sacrifice. It was at Shiloh at this stage. And once a year, they would make this pilgrimage to go up and worship God and sacrifice and praise him for his goodness. And, and, and so they were devout, they loved God, God had been good to them. In fact, the only thing Hannah didn't have was what she wanted most, and that was a son. It was the only place she felt lack in her life, but the hole it created couldn't be filled by anything or anyone else. The pain it brought couldn't be relieved by anything else. And life's a bit like that, isn't it? We see people, and on the surface, they seem to have everything. We look at their lives and we think, don't they just sail through life? Don't they have it all? Look at their house, look at their car, look at their fancy holidays, look at how much money they have. And yet, deep down, that's probably not the case. We all have a deep need that we don't talk about. We all have a burden that weighs heavily on us. We all have an area of our lives that causes no end of pain and heartache. We have everything except one thing. We have something we're longing for, something we're praying for, something we desire to see happening and it's not happening and it creates a space and a hole that nothing or no one can fill. We've tried everything we know and nothing has worked. That's how Hannah felt. And what's worse, there was someone who kept taunting her 
about it and rubbing her nose in it. Look at verses uh, 4 and then 68. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. Her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Sounds like a lovely person. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Alcana, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Humble husband of the year, right there. So every year they would go to Shiloh to worship, and this was meant to be a highlight of the year, but it actually became the lowest point in Hannah's life. Because what would happen there as part of this worship festival is that Alcana would line up all his children and all his sons, and he would bless them. And as he would do that, Hannah would be standing over here, watching the whole thing with no children of her own to be blessed. But not only that, she had someone taunting her. She had Alcana's other wife, Penina, saying, are you not going to bring your sons along to be blessed? Oh, that's right, you don't have any. I forgot, sorry about that. It must be just such a disappointment to be such a failure to your husband. And she kept rubbing her nose in and it says year after year after year. Some of us know what that feels like. You get another wedding invitation and it reminds you of what you want most and that is to be married. And you go along and you celebrate and yet deep down you long that that's you. You've been bridesmaid to 43 different girls. <laughs> You've beaten people out of the way to catch the bouquet. And it still hasn't happened. You find out that your best friend's pregnant. You're invited to another baby shower. And while you're genuinely pleased for them, you weep quietly and silently because you know that for you this just isn't your friend keeps showing you what she's bought and all the new things she has and you say they're lovely and that's great and it just reminds you of how little money you have. You watch couples who seem to be so in love and so passionate about one another and seem to be, have this great marriage and it just reminds you of how much of a struggle and a difficulty your own marriage is right now. Friends are getting new jobs it seems like they only need to apply for a job and they get it. And you've applied for 42 jobs and you haven't even had a letter back from one of them. And you're pleased for them, but your heart breaks. It could be anything that triggers that feeling of emptiness and brings the pain to the surface. In that culture, as I said earlier, they used this horrible word called barren. And while I really don't like that word, as I studied it in the Hebrew, I realized there were six different words for barrenness in the Old Testament. And I began to see how they might apply to different areas of our lives. The Hebrew definitions for barrenness are these. Something not working as it should. To be robbed of something. A desert place where there is little life to be closed up, restrained, unfruitful, to be attacked or taken advantage of, a wilderness, lonely place. Do any of these apply to your life this morning? I know they do to mine. Is there anywhere where things just don't seem to be working as they should? Maybe not 
working the way they used to work. You're doing everything you did before, but you're not getting the results that you used to get. Is there anywhere that you feel like you've been robbed of something, that something has been taken from you, and it's rightfully yours, and you're angry, and you want it back? Does any area of your life feel like a desert? You feel dry, dead, and lifeless. Do you feel closed up, restrained, restricted, intimidated, unfruitful? Like you're given everything you've got, you're doing your best, but you're not getting any results. Do you feel like you're in a wilderness at the moment? Depressed, dry, empty, drained, exhausted, lonely. When it comes down to it, barrenness really means this. Things aren't working as they should Things aren't as they should be. And it's in that place that real prayer and intercession begins. It's in that place that something has to change. Something has to shift. There has to be movement. It has to turn around. It can't stay this way. I can't take this anymore. That's the place Hannah reached. And her breaking point became her breakthrough point. Her breaking point became her breakthrough point. Look at verses 9 to 11. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Look at the first thing Hannah did. She stood up. Seems like a small and significant thing, but she changed her position. She moved. She took action. She could have sat where she was feeling sorry for herself and nothing would have changed. And who would have blamed her? After so many years of trying to have a child and nothing happening, she could have just decided, this must be God's lot in life for me. This is just the way it is. This is it. Nothing's ever going to be any better. But nowhere do we read that God had told her this was a permanent condition. And I want to say to you this morning that you're present situation is not a permanent condition. Your present situation is not a permanent condition. Just because something hasn't happened, just because you haven't seen breakthrough, just because you haven't seen that person healed, just because you haven't had a child, just because you haven't met that person you're going to marry, just because you haven't got a job, that does not mean that that is the way it's always going to be. Do not settle for less than God's best for you. The taunts of her rival provoked her to pray with purpose and passion. And sometimes God will allow opposition and enemies into our lives, not to harm us, but to provoke us to move. Sometimes obstacles and opposition and enemies are the things that take us out of that place where we've got stuck or we've got lazy and it causes us to rise up and take action because something has to change. He allows things that shake us so that he can shape us. He lets us experience pain and burdens about something not being right so that we're motivated to do something about it. He creates that divine discontent. Have you ever felt that? This is not how it should be. 
You look at something on the news and you say, that is not how it should be. You look at women being trafficked, children being abused, people who don't know Jesus, and you go, that is not how it should be. As a teenager, a young Christian, I sat in a traditional church doing the stand-up, sit-down canticles, and I said, this is not how it should be. And that divine discontent started to stir something within me, and I started to dream of something radical, a church I would actually want to go to on a Sunday. A church I would look forward to. A church where the word of God would be preached, where people would worship with passion, where there would be community and the, and the city would be changed. I started to dream about my friend Barry Ford and I, who's, he's a minister in Belfast. He's from Killacamain and Portadown. We used to stand at the top of the street at one or two in the morning talking about what church could and should be like because I began to dream. And my theory is this with this church. I want to tell you how I make a lot of decisions. If I wouldn't want to go to it we don't do it I don't want to lead a church that I wouldn't want to go to that's it that might be selfish that's okay I have to come every week you don't okay so that is just my theory if you want to do something and it's not something that we would want to do just go and do it it doesn't have to be a church event but I do not want us to do stuff in here that I really don't want to do I want to lead a church that I want to go to, that I'm excited about on a Sunday morning. Do you know, I was in England this week. If you're wondering where Becky and Elijah are, they're still in England. It was Becky's mom's 80th. I was there Thursday and Friday. I flew home Friday night. The party was last night. Not just because I don't like people that much, but because I wanted to be in church. I could have got a guest preacher. I want to be in the house of the Lord with the people of God on Sunday. I look forward to being here. I never have to drag myself out of bed on a Sunday morning, folks. I have to tell you that. I was up at 6 a.m. this morning and I was just loving the word and excited about getting into the word. And I'm so thankful for a church that I can do that, that I don't have to go through some wee four-minute homily about recycling or about nuclear weapons. I don't have any nuclear weapons to deal with. But what I do have is a saviour that I can preach to you and no matter what state of life you're in, he can save you. Hannah moved. She took action. She made a decision. This is not how it should be. She does something. Verse 10. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. We always have a choice. Pain will either move us towards God or we'll walk away from God. I've seen it again and again. We can allow pain and heartache in our lives to push us towards God, to nestle into him, or the enemy will use it to push us away from God. And I know some of you are going through pain right now, and all I can say to you is press into God. Push into him. Don't push him away. Hannah goes to God with her prayer. She goes to God with her heartache. She turns her pain into prayer. Look at the language, deep anguish, weeping bitterly. This is no wee prayer like, dear Lord, if it be your will, would you please give me a child one day? This is a passionate outpouring of her heart. It's her greatest longings. It's her deepest desires being brought to the throne of the living God with the acknowledgement that if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. You're my only hope. She had done everything she could. She had done everything she knew and nothing of hers had worked and if God didn't come through, it wasn't 
going to happen, but she still believed. She still believed. She still believed in the power of prayer. She still believed that God could turn things around. She still believed in miracles. She didn't assume that this was the way God wanted it to be, but that her God had the power to do the impossible. David Jeremiah is a well-known pastor in the States. And a number of years ago, David Jeremiah was diagnosed with cancer. And after it, he wrote a book about prayer. And this is what he says. When I began a battle against cancer a few years ago, I learned something about prayer. And I know of no better way to say it than this. There's prayer, and then there's prayer. When things are going smoothly in your life, you pray one way. When you get into a tight spot, you pray another way. Your pleas become more intense you find yourself crying out to God. This is where Hannah is. She cries out to God. She never gives up hope. Just because it has never been doesn't mean it can never be. And as we move into this week of prayer and fasting, I want to encourage you to do something. Pray for the things you're passionate about. Pray for the things that keep you awake. Pray for the things that anger you. Pray for the things in your life that are not as they should be. That is why we call it reset. God wants to reset our lives. When my phone isn't working, when it's on the blink, when something, when I'm pressing and pressing and nothing's happening, you do a reset. And it brings it back to the way it should be. And God this week in our lives and in our church, I believe, wants to do a divine reset. He wants things to be back to the way he intended them to be. T.D. Jack says this. There will always be situations and circumstances that you can't change for yourself or your children. There will always be something over which you're utterly powerless, and it may be something potentially devastating. In such moments of crisis, there is no substitute for prayer, and there is no source of strength and comfort like prayer. Let your voice be heard in heaven, and let me assure you that God is listening when you pray. Believe in the power of prayer. Secondly, believe prayer can make a difference that God hears you, that when you pray, it doesn't just hit the ceiling, but all of the resources of heaven and God is all the resources of the universe at his disposal. In one week, your situation can look different than it looks today. Just think about that. If you take this week seriously, in one week, your life can look different. R.A. Torrey puts it like this, prayer is the key that unlocks all the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that God is and all that God does is at the disposal of prayer. But we must use the key. Prayer can do anything God can do. And as God can do anything, prayer is omnipotent. Prayer is omnipotent. It's all-powerful. There is nothing that prayer cannot do because there is nothing that your God cannot do. And if only we could get this, if only we could understand this, that when we pray, when we pray, heaven moves. When we pray, earth shifts. When we pray, God acts. Now, I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that in his absolute sovereignty, God has set up the universe that he is moved by our prayers. He is sovereign. He can do anything he wants. But in his sovereignty, he has set the universe up that when his people pray, things change. There are things that will happen if you pray and things that won't happen if you don't pray. 
It is not Kesara, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. That's fatalism. That is not faith. Faith is saying, this is not how it should be, but there's a God in heaven who can do the impossible. And so I'm going to invite him to come in and change this situation. John Wesley said this, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. Prayer affects human history. Prayer affects nations. And prayer can affect your life. Jack Hefford says this. You and I can help decide which of these two things, blessing or cursing, is happening on earth. We can determine whether God's goodness is released towards specific situations or whether the power of sin and Satan is permitted to prevail. Prayer is the determining factor. If we don't, he won't. But because prayer is so powerful, the enemy will do anything to stop you praying. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how hard it is to pray? Like, I can pretty much do anything, but when I try to pray, I struggle. I get distracted. My mind drifts off. My mobile rings. I start doing things and looking at things and thinking about things that I should have done yesterday and I'm stressing about later on and I get distracted. I wonder could that be because the enemy knows just how powerful prayer is. He doesn't care what you do this week as long as you don't pray. One writer says this. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on his knees. Why does he tremble? Because we have power when we pray. We win victories when we pray. We dispel darkness when we pray. We break chains of addiction when we pray. So Hannah prays, but look what else she does. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She made a voice saying, Lord Almighty, if only you will look on your servant's misery and remember me. And do not forget your servant. God, here I am. Don't forget me. Give me a son. Look at what she says. And give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Pray specifically. She says, she doesn't just say, God, give me a child. What does she say? I want a son. And I say this often, that the more specific your prayers, the more you will recognize the answer when God answers those prayers. That there's something about praying specifically. Why does Jesus ask a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? Because he wants to hear him articulate, I want to see. He wants you to express the deepest desires of your heart. Write it down, write it down, write it down. Find scriptures that relate to the things that you're praying for and declare and decree and remind God of his word. Say, God, your word says this about my life. You have spoken this over my life and I'm just reminding you of it. Not that he's a bad memory, but the Bible talks often about them reminding the Lord of things. He loves it when you remind, God, you spoke this to me about my family. You spoke this to me about my son. And even though he's out and he's on drugs and he's drinking and he's doing all sorts of stuff, you told me he would be a man of God. And so I'm reminding you of that, God. I'm reminding you of your promise to me that you'd give me a husband. I'm reminding you of your promise for financial provision in my life. Write it down. Speak it out. Believe it is going to happen. Hannah pours out her heart. But she's misunderstood by those around her. Look at what it says. As she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? 
Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying out here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked for him. Eli looks at this woman and how emotional she is. And he thinks she's sozzled. He thinks she's hammered. He thinks she's had too much to drink. He doesn't get her. He gives her a hard time. What he doesn't realize is that she's not drunk. She's desperate. And this week as you pray and as you fast, some people will misunderstand you. When you're in the canteen and work and you're having a bowl of soup or just a juice or whatever, people will ask you what you're doing and you'll tell them I'm fasting because I'm praying, because I'm believing God for things. And they'll say, is that not a bit extreme? You know what, to the religious, to the half-hearted and to the nominal, passion always looks like extremism. To those who are wishy-washy, lukewarm, and only care about tradition, passion, and biblical, authentic faith, faith will always look like extremism. Christians, real Christians today, who believe the Bible are extremists. Who believe that babies shouldn't be killed in the womb. Who believe that marriage is one man, one woman. We are extremists. I'm happy to be an extremist if that's the case but I'm also going to love extremely. I'm going to be compassionate extremely, but I don't have to water down the word of God to love passionately and to show the, Christ, the love of Christ to people around me. Just being a Christian today, a real biblical Christian, will label you as an extremist. Push through that. This isn't about them, it's about you and God. This is about resetting some things in your life that are not the way they should be. Look at what it says after Hannah prayed. Then she went her way and ate something. In other words, she was fasting. She wasn't eating. And her face was no longer downcast. Hannah comes away from prayer a different person. Prayer had transformed her. Even before the prayer had been physically answered or manifested before her. Prayer not only moves God, prayer changes you and me. Prayer lifts us out of despair. Prayer changes our emotions. Prayer enlarges our vision. Prayer increases our expectation. It softens our hearts. It improves our dispositions. It lightens our loads and it refreshes our souls. Hannah prayed. She knew God had heard her and she knew she could leave it with him because it was done. There comes a point in prayer when you just know it's been heard. You just know. Have you ever had that? Where you're praying for something and you just know it's done. I can just start thanking. I can just start worshipping. I don't need to keep praying about this because it's happening. You just get this sense of confirmation in your spirit that this is done. Let's see what happens. We're finishing up here. 19 to 20. Early in the morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah And the Lord remembered her. What was her prayer? Lord, remember me. And the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Prayer births a miracle. Through prayer, she birthed her miracle son. 
The seemingly impossible happened. The door that had been closed was opened. Her emptiness was filled. But I want you to notice this. It's important to note that just because she prayed didn't mean she had to do her part. This was no immaculate conception. Hannah went home. Her face was lit up because she'd been with the Lord. She had a word from God. She had a shower. She put on her Jean-Paul Gaudier perfume. And she looked at Alcana and she said, Alcana, I'm going to bed now. Stop watching Netflix, come for a cuddle. She did her part too. Prayer is not all God or all us. It is us doing everything we can do and then let God do the thing that only he can do. We do the possible, God does the impossible. We do all we can and God does that which only he can do. What do you need God to reset in your life? One writer says this. You can do more after, you, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you can never do more than pray until you've prayed. This week, pray fast, seek his face, write down your prayers. Be specific. Make time. But then leave the rest to God. Do everything you can do, but also realize there's things that only he can do. What do you need God to reset this week? I want you to think about that in your life. What do you need God to move in your life? What do you need God to break through in your life? What door do you need God to open? What mountain do you need to move? What heart do you need to soften? I really believe there's something about families on this week. Just even this morning, as I was praying at home, I feel there's something about praying for families, praying for unsaved family and friends, and and, and just praying for sickness in families, praying for needs in families, praying for brokenness in families, praying for strained marriages, praying for wayward children and prodigals. I really believe there's something this week on praying for families. And so I want you to really lean in to that. But I honestly, I'm so looking forward to the week in many ways, as hard as it is. I'm looking forward. Thursday night is just a testimony and worship night. It's a night when we're coming together with a couple of friends coming to lead us in worship to give our guys a break because I know obviously they'll be starving. And so uh, I've invited a couple of friends from another church, Tom and, and, uh, and his fiancée, to come uh, to, to lead us in worship. Who, they led us one Sunday night here. And, uh, and they're going to come and lead us in worship. We're going to have communion, but mostly we're just going to give space for God to speak and to hear what God is doing. We're going to seek direction for the year from him. We're going to hear his voice. We're going to hear how he's transformed and reset situations. I want to finish with a story. It's a story I read recently. And it's a testimony, personal testimony, by a guy called Sp- Spencer Janiari is his name. And he says this, this is his own words. It was 1945, and the U.S. Army's 35th Infantry Division, of which I was a 24-year-old member, was pushing through the woods and towns in the Rhineland area of West Germany. As I and my comrades were cautiously making our way through a thickly wooded area, word came that the company ahead of us had been badly shot up by the enemy and that my company would replace them. 
When my company arrived on the scene, I was appalled by the grimness of the situation. Only a handful of wounded, bleeding soldiers hiding behind a large stone house at the edge of the woods had survived. The route to Ossenburg had been completely blockaded. God, I desperately prayed, thinking of my wife and little son back home. You've got to do something. God, please do something. Moments later, the order was given to advance. Just as the soldier ahead of me took a step, something to the left caught my eye. I stopped and stared in amazement. A cloud, a long, fluffy, white cloud had appeared instantly out of nowhere, obscuring the Germans' line of fire. Taking advantage of this miraculous turn of events, I and my fellow soldiers bolted into the clearing and ran for our lives. Safe in the sheltering woods on the other side of the clearing, my pulse pounding in my ears, I hid behind a tree and exclaimed, This has to be God. I'm going to see what happens now. I watched closely as the last American soldier frantically raced towards my comrades in the woods. I will never forget what happened next. The instant the soldier scrambled to safety, the cloud vanished. Just like that, poof, it was gone. The Germans thought that they still had us pinned down behind the stone house on the other side of the field. So they radioed its position to their artillery and minutes later that house was blown to bits. Two weeks later, a letter arrived from my mother back in Dallas, Texas. Son, what in the world was the matter on the morning of March 9th, she asked. You remember Mrs. Tankersley from our church? Well, she called me that morning and said the Lord had awakened her at one o'clock in the night and said, Spencer is in serious trouble. Get up now and pray for him. Mrs. Tankerley said she interceded for you from one o'clock to six o'clock in the morning. And she told me that the last thing she prayed before getting off her knees was, Lord, whatever danger Spencer is in, just cover him with a cloud. When we pray, heaven moves. When we pray, earth shifts. And I believe this week God wants to reset something in our hearts and lives. And I'm just asking you to join me and pray for yourself, pray for your family and friends, pray for this community, pray for this church, that God would reset, revive, renew, refresh, reveal himself, that people would come to know Jesus Christ and that we would experience him in greater ways.